0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about letting justice roll. The fact is, we can do better than we're doing today. this particular inappropriate conversations is going to be different from any other that I've recorded except potentially maybe one a few years ago. In one sense, I guess I could say that I'm doing this one live, but it's not live in the sense that anyone could be tuning in and hearing me as I'm recording. It's not being broadcast. I mean it more live from the laziness perspective and that I'm going to attempt to do this without having to make any edits. Now, having said that i 'm going to pause as I need to if i if I have to cough i 've been fighting a cold lately, so there 's a chance that that'll come up and also, what I typically record in an appropriate conversation show, I will give myself maybe a couple of attempts at certain topics if i 'm looking if i 'm doing a reading, for example, I might read it through if I make a mistake, just go ahead and start over i 'm not going to do any of that today i 'm going to try to riff on this completely. And part of the reason is I've come to the conclusion over the last couple of weeks that I just cannot do this one the way I would normally do it. I'm going to have to freeform. I'm going to have to roam around. In part, because I think the topic is too big. In the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, a friend of the family heard about the show. A friend of my wife at work, in fact, heard about the show and said that she thought that if I really wanted to live up to the title of the program and have an Inappropriate Conversation that I simply had to deal with race. Race is an issue, race relations in this country, in the country of the United States. And I said at the time, you know, I don't think I bring much expertise to the topic, and that's still true today, although I think I probably bring perspective. And perspective is the thing I'm going to try to offer. In typical inappropriate conversations style, I'm approaching this as a radical moderate. So I'm not speaking on behalf of the left side of the political spectrum, or the right. I'm not coming at it from a, a Democrat or a Republican piece of turf that needs to be defended. And being a, uh, a white, married, very middle-aged person, maybe beyond middle, <clears throat> I don't come to this with any sort of genuine race experience. I've never experienced racism. So I'm going to sidestep the question of race per se, and only suggest that the problem is perhaps bigger than that. Now, I understand that if you were somebody dealing with race relations and perhaps dealing with a police brutality situation, it would be almost impossible to even conceive of me saying that I think the problem is bigger than that particular situation. But I do think it is, in that I think that maybe if every accusation of race that has burned through the issues here in the latter half of calendar year 2014. I realize I'm recording at the beginning of 2015. But even if all those accusations are true, I would simply say that it reflects the fact that we need to do police work in this country better than we do it today. And interestingly, when you hear people talk about the alternative, saying, well, this isn't just white police officers shooting black people because they've got cases of black police officers shooting white you know, disenfranchised teenagers or, you know, young adults. And everyone's quick to make this a, you know, an either-or fallacy of sorts. Hey, because there's not the same outrage in Utah over that minority police officer shot a white kid, that means that there's no legitimate reason to be concerned about the number of cases that have seemed to have spiked upward of the opposite racial configuration. So what I want to do is sort of set aside for now the question of racial configuration. I'm not denying that it's real. In fact, I'm going to get to privilege at some point along the way here because I think one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest denial issues for a majority of Americans, and I mean that uh, majority from the perspective of of just racial demographics, is failure to acknowledge the reality of what happens when when profiling is involved, for example. So I'm not going to ignore it completely, but I'm going to set it aside for now and just sort of establish the theme for the show. And the theme is that we can do better than we're doing today. We can do police work better than we're doing today. Uh, Journalism can be done better than it's doing today. And on those rare occasions when it's actually done well, we might want to stop speaking ill of those reporters on national news programs. We want to stop police forces from arresting them and jailing them for having the audacity to ask questions and to go into places where newsworthy situations are happening. And I don't know their job reporting against what's occurring there. So, While the ambient sound of this particular non-edit recording is going on, uh, my phone could buzz here in a minute. There might be a plane flying over here. But while all that's happening, I'm simply going to dive in and talk a little bit about some of the statistical facts that we're looking at and why it's a concern. Because the one point of view I reject, I reject the idea that we don't have a problem here. We clearly do. We have a problem in that our police officers are using uh, fatality shootings as a way of dealing with issues that I don't believe 25 years ago would have led to a fatality shooting. And just from that point alone, I'm going to suggest we can do better than we're doing today. I'm even going to be as deferential as I can and say that in a lot of these cases, I'm not willing to say that the police officers in question have done it wrong. I'm just going to say that they could have done it better. And I'm going to even dive into the most controversial case of all in the last perhaps year or so, and and attack it from that perspective, because again, in what I'm hoping, what I'm targeting is a one-hour show, uh, I'm not going to do an edit, so who knows, <laughs> but what I'm targeting is a one-hour show, I don't have time to get into you know, Grand Jury this and Witness 42, or, I don't have time for that, I'm just going to boil it down and say, we can get to a point of consensus, I believe, and that point of consensus is, yeah, we didn't handle that as well as we could have, given the choice we might have handled that one differently. And maybe I don't have enough time in this particular inappropriate conversations show to get to the bottom of what I mean by differently. But I think I'm going to be very concerned if I can't begin to get to what I think is some kind of a consensus on the question of differently, not the specifics, but just the idea that in almost all of these cases, we could have done better. Now, here's my problem. I've shared this point of view with some of the most rational members of my family and I'm not persuaded I got as much traction as I could have. I've raised the question with pastor friends of mine that maybe the situation should have played out in such a way that a person in their early 20s didn't get shot and killed that day. And I've got some pastors, and again, some of these are pastors who have a strong, very conservative, guns rights kind of perspective, but nevertheless, people who are shepherding a flock inside a congregation and a church who are pastors in every sense of the word who aren't 100% sure that maybe it wasn't a good thing that that kid got gunned down on the street. We have a problem here. We have a serious problem. And it's not one that I'm going to take for granted. So let me just jump into the first question I think you've got to face in a situation like that and say, well, what's our scope here? What are we dealing with? From an article that was published uh, on CNN by Eric Bradner, first week of December, says this, Syndicated columnist Nicholas Kristof wrote this week that young black men are 20 times more, 21 times more likely to be shot and killed by police than young white men. Fox News Channel host Bill O'Reilly had a much different take on his show Monday night of the same week, offering that more whites are killed by police than blacks. I'm going to stop for a second on the article. I'll get back into it in a second. But it's interesting that we, we keep having the wrong conversation here. How about the fact that instead of arguing about whether more white kids are killed by police than black kids are killed by police, or or maybe it's just total stats on people, or maybe it's just men they're looking at, we'll talk about how they define young and old in a second, but maybe instead of arguing about the race, we should be arguing about the question of why there has been a seeming and perhaps even statistically valid uptick in the number of police uh, fatality involving police officers. It goes both ways. I'll get there in just a second, but... We seem to be not worried about the core of the issue because we're so busy arguing about the color behind the issue. Back to the article, quoting O'Reilly, In 2012, 123 African Americans were shot dead by police. There are currently more than 43 million blacks living in the USA. Same year, 326 whites were killed by police bullets. These are the latest stats available. End quote From O'Reilly. From the article, Two, different, two dramatically different statistics... And they both could be right. I love this. This is actually one of the things about statistics I like the best. They both could be right. That reality, in part, is the result of weak local reporting and national data gathering efforts on police homicides, which has long frustrated researchers. Here's how the two pundits came to two dramatically different conclusions. Kristoff was citing an analysis by ProPublica, which combed through the FBI's supplementary homicide report. That site reported that 1,217 deadly police shootings from 2010 to 2012 captured in the federal data. Data shows that blacks from ages 15 to 19 were killed at a rate of 31.17 million, while just 1.47 per million white males in the same age range died at the hands of police. What's key is that ProPublica narrowed the scope of its analysis to the 15-19 to age range and adjusted for population differences to account for the fact that more whites live in the United States than blacks, both key differences from O'Reilly's approach. I think my perspective here is that we probably should be very wary of people who don't understand concepts like weighted averages or other measures and yet cite statistics. That's pointing a criticism in the direction of O'Reilly, if you couldn't tell. The Fox News host numbers, meanwhile, came from a fatal injury database maintained by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So to cut to the chase, what it means is that both men have some accurate statistics to report, but depending on how you slice them and depending on how you filter them, you're going to come up with a very different approach to the data. So we might make the claim that both of them have correct facts, but I expect from commentators better usage of those facts. And I also would raise the question... Of whether we actually have all the facts. There was a recent Change.org petition uh, that was sent out on behalf of a writer called Terrence Greer, Decatur, Georgia. Uh, As a research assistant at Emory University's Department of History, Greer wrote, I was shocked and saddened when I unintentionally discovered, while attempting to gather data for a short essay on police brutality and its effects on minority communities, that the U.S. Justice Department has chosen to continue to ignore a 20-year-old law that requires it to collect data on police use of excessive ref- of force and release their findings in a summary every year. I said to myself, wait, we don't have any reliable data on police use of excessive force? And there is already a law that says we are supposed to have this data? I'll let his question speak for him, for itself, for the most part. And I'll let him maybe foreshadow what I'm going to get to here in a second. Because he says, in the wake of many high-profile police brutality cases, like Eric Garner, Michael Brown, John Crawford. This is a total breakdown of the democratic process and must be recognized and addressed. So I think what we're saying is that if two different reporters, uh, Christoph and uh, O'Reilly, can come up with completely different answers on what the statistics say about the amount of unnecessary use of force or fatality shootings, we'll get to whether some of these are unnecessary or not. The reality is we don't even have all the data to begin with. That's why one is going to the Center for Disease Control to find, curiously, right, to find information on police shootings, while another one is going to the FBI to get information on shootings involving local police jurisdictions, because the fact of the matter is the Department of Justice is supposed to be tracking this by law, and they're not. One more interesting fact about the petition that Greer put out there is that, you look back 20 years and say, okay, what, what might have happened 20 years ago that would have led for a law like this to be put on the books in the first place? And I don't know, haven't done the research, but I wonder aloud if the desire for this data doesn't correspond with perhaps the very first, you know, twist in the tail of the war on drugs, where suddenly we began to do what I would describe as militarizing our police force under the auspices of the War on Drugs, and certainly, you know, 14 years ago, under the auspices of the War on Terror, we would have put in a lot of of new military equipment. And in some cases, there's been reporting that says that that military equipment can only be retained by the jurisdictions of those police forces if they're actually used, if there's a demonstrated need. So, if you've got some pretty cool weaponry that you can only keep if over a period of time, well, that's one year, 18 months, whatever... You've demonstrated that there was a need to use it and it was actually used. Well, then, if you have what may or may not be a SWAT team situation, do you mentally tell yourself that it needs to be a SWAT team situation? Otherwise, I won't have the SWAT team resources. I won't have the raw materials to use if I ever get myself into one. So, by ramping up the militarization of our police force, what have some of the consequences been? I'm going to get to the statistics here in a minute, the stats that Wikipedia has, which great on the curve in terms of the quality of data there, but it's a big enough range that I don't think we can ignore it. So I'll share those numbers in a minute. But before I get there, I think I want to be very deferential and say that one of the things you've got to worry about when you add more weaponry to your police, when getting a cat out of a tree requires you know a gun instead of a ladder, and therefore a routine traffic stop might require that gun to be you know, raised, loaded, aimed, and pointed. And maybe dealing with a domestic dispute requires somebody to bring some high arsenal and high caliber and high cartridge kind of guns. And if you actually did have a real hostage situation that was proven to be a little bit beyond your, your normal scenario, you might actually be bringing in the, the police equivalent of tanks. As you ramp up, the arsenal that police bring to what historically might have been described as ordinary police situations, you probably, and maybe I would say even seemingly here, increase the likelihood that the people the police are going to be interacting with are also going to ramp up their arsenal, which then has this spiraling effect of making the police feel justified in the use of even heavier, heavier artillery, which would then make people who actually are committing crimes uh, even more aware of the fact that if they're going to find themselves in conflict with the police, they're going to their only hope of getting away with it is going to be to increase their artillery. And we've got a, a, a mini arms race going on here, not unlike what might have happened during the Cold War, where in the United States, the Cold War mentality, the relationship between Russia and America, which drove so much of American politics and certainly American foreign policy for, well, probably my entire lifetime would be the honest way to put it. Uh, anyone born more than just a couple of years after World War II, would have lived in a serious Cold War, or now post-Cold War kind of environment. But we've transferred this, this uh, arms race, this Cold War mentality, without having a, a necessarily the same enemy, without necessarily being to relate to the Russians the same way. We're now, uh, we have a military, interna- internationally a military in search of an enemy. And perhaps domestically, we also have a police force, In search of an enemy, well, the consequence of some of that is that you're—we're factually, actually, truthfully, not just having more cases of police um, using fatal gunshot as a solution to a police problem, but we're also truthfully having more situations where more police officers are being killed. From an NBC News article that was published just a few days ago, three weeks ago, uh, it reads like this. Shooting deaths of members of the U.S. law enforcement community spiked by 56% in 2014 over the previous year, including more than a dozen ambush attacks against officers. According to new data released Tuesday, on a week that will be bookended by funerals for slain cops, the rise in police fatalities is marked by a nationwide set of protests after incidences of unarmed black men dying at the hands of white officers. Overall, 126 officers at the federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial levels were killed in the line of duty, a 24% uptick from the 102 deaths last year, according to the National Law Enforcement Officers' Memorial Fund. Shootings compose the majority of deaths, 50 in 2014, up from 32 in 2013. Traffic fatalities came in second at 49 in 2014, a slight increase from 44 in 2013. The interesting thing is that this is making a comparison from a this year, last year perspective. But it's important to note later in the article that despite the fact that the number of on-duty police deaths is up from the previous year, the total number of 126 is still lower than the average for the last decade of 151. But then again, I would describe that concept of the last decade as being a decade where we have severely militarized our police force. So this is not unlike, you know, I wish I could find this uh, article I wrote shortly after college, an editorial for the college newspaper that I'd recently graduated from, talking about the Bernard Getz situation in New York City. And for those who can remember that far back, we'd be talking late 1980s, I believe. He was a uh, a loner on the subway, I guess would be the way to word it, who had armed himself because I think he had been, he'd found himself in conflict before. Or he'd had reasons to be concerned for his safety before. And a group of uh, teenagers, in this case black teenagers, came up to mug him, armed with uh, screwdrivers, maybe ice picks, that sort of stuff, and he shot them. And essentially, the last one that he shot, or maybe the last two that he shot, he shot in the back as they were trying to flee. And the argument that I made at the time was that I, I don't want to presume from somebody sitting in the American Midwest uh, to tell New York City how to how to govern its subway system, that there are realities on the street that perhaps you would only understand if you were the mayor and the police force of a city of that size, with that unique set of challenges. My only point was, is that if we are going to arm our population, we need to hold them to a standard similar to what we hold the police to. Meaning, that if a police shot a suspect fleeing in the back, there would be serious questions raised in the late 1980s. And the (laughs) the funny thing is, I'm not sure those same serious questions would be raised today that over time, we haven't moved the vigilante in the crowd up to the standard of police work in the 1980s. We have perhaps moved police down to the standard of the vigilante in the crowd from the 1980s. Because the other thing I said I was worried about in that Getz case was, maybe the next time the surviving members of that gang of teenagers, I use the term gang loosely, but I don't know that factually, but the surviving members of that clan of friends Maybe the next time they show up in the subway to rob somebody, they bring a gun and not a not a screwdriver. In which case, we've we've done a little more than escalate the issue. Having said that, I don't necessarily have a problem with Getz trying to defend himself. I guess my main problem is the method that he chose. And even if we, you know, frown and just accept that there was not much we could do about the method that he chose, that as a citizen he probably had an obligation to. Uh, pay the fine or do the time for whatever gun violation he'd committed. Um, You know, if he didn't have a registered weapon, if he wasn't supposed to carry the weapon on the subway, so forth and so on. But even if you were in the extreme willing to grant that he had a a huge, we're going to cut him a huge, uh, you know, leeway on how to defend himself. It's nevertheless true that there was genuine risk that his method of defending himself would only escalate the next time somebody who was reading these news accounts or or had a similar you know, criminal ambition might raise the stakes that much higher. This is obviously true when you start talking about the way to manage law enforcement. And I think one of the other issues we've got is the, for whatever positive impact there is on three strikes and your outlaws, there's certainly negative impacts, especially when you overlay a three strikes, you're out approach with what we might call nonviolent crime. If something like um, shoplifting or uh, you know, soliciting prostitu- prostitution or use of uh, relatively low-level narcotics, if, if being in possession of one joint could be one of those three strikes, you suddenly get into a situation where somebody who has been caught twice with, with one joint of marijuana, if he gets pulled over the next time for you know, possession of stolen property or something, And he knows the consequences are likely to be life in prison or 40 years hard time with no opportunity for parole. You've increased the likelihood that we've put a police officer doing his job managing what we might consider to be a relatively minor felony offense and turned it into a situation where the officer's understanding of the potential for fatality in that situation is off. Because the person on that third strike might actually behave as if he had just committed a murder or a series of murders, because his criminal penalty is going to be like that. So whenever you get in a situation where a police officer is pulling somebody over for rolling through a stop sign, and now every time that scenario happens, the police officer has to be worried that the person inside is going to commit some, I would would say, some sort of non-sequitur reaction that... There's nothing in what the police officer saw. There's frankly, in, in the hypothetical I'm providing, nothing that the police officer could have learned from the dispatch office in terms of this person having a warrant for a burglary or warrant for arrest or even for parking tickets. But it's that three strikes thing that anything that umps the ante puts the police officer at a complete disadvantage. So I want to do two things. I want to look at some statistics and kind of give us a sobering sense that something's wrong here and that we need to do it better and that I'm not gonna try not to point any fingers. I'm not gonna to try to lever, lever any big words like racism on people. I'm not gonna make it seem like the the uh, the police are <clears throat> evil and wrong. Uh, I'm also not gonna make I'm also not gonna make it look like every person who has been on the receiving end of this is also evil and wrong. Any more than I'm gonna to try to you know make sainthood for people who've encountered police violently because I think a majority of the time, maybe even most of the time. People who encounter police in these violent situations are doing so because there's probably something wrong happening, and the police are trying to intervene. Now, having said that, I'm going to come up with some examples and some situations here from the very recent part of 2014 that would tell a very different story, and what I would consider to be a very sobering story about our use of force. But the best way to put that into, into effect is to say, I'm going to rattle off some statistics from Wikipedia from a page that's called List of Killings by Law Enforcement Officers in the United States. I'm looking at August 2014, but there's a monthly set of lists. And there's actually a whole set of years going back to, uh, starting with maybe 2009. There's a list before that, but 2009 is where it's a fairly solid annual list. And the thing we need to remember is that probably in the last decade or so, we haven't done a very good job of systemically capturing these statistics. So whatever may be said about whether there's data here that it's wikipedia it's somewhat of a crowdsourced uh, page of information not necessarily being delivered to us by professional journalists but anymore i'm not sure what professional or journalists mean would we call bill o'reilly a professional journalist when he's using a very flat set of statistics to argue that someone else's stats are wrong when both are right depending on how you look at it? i mean our journalists are not as smart as they used to be anyway let's put it that way but having said that just the numbers alone, I think I'm going to suggest that we're more likely to be missing um, elements of this data, that the numbers are probably going to be larger if we actually had a better system of managing tracking a database of this information. So whatever might fall out this list, because it was put in there inaccurately and incorrectly, the odds seem to me to be much higher that there's probably cases we don't know about because they're not being tracked. So I just want to go through 12 months and just rattle off the statistics These are the number of the, just a list of killings by law enforcement officers. January 52, February 13, March 16, April 11, May 20, June 40, July 24, August 105. Just stop there for a second. In August, I began to say loudly and clearly, something is wrong here. Now, if you visit... Uh, Facebook and and take a look at the inappropriate conversations page that is on Facebook. I'm not going to reread or refer directly to any of those articles unless I do so just by memory or happenstance. I'm not trying to make this an audio version of things I post on Facebook, meaning that if you visit Facebook and find the inappropriate conversations page there's listed as a cause, you're going to find a ton of references To cases like this. And part of the reason that I started getting a lot more intense in August, September, October about posting these things was that I had friends and acquaintances and family members telling me that I was wrong, that this isn't happening, that it's not disproportionate, that there's no increase, that it's just media manipulation, that the numbers don't bear it out. Well, guess what? In the last three months before August, we moved from 20, 40, and 24 of these types of killings to 105. Something went wrong. September, 78. October, 56. November, 92. And December, 86. I'm going to attribute the activity from October through December as being an increase in the numbers related to the public's outcry about the spike that happened in August. But the spike that happened in August, I don't think can simply be explained away by some Boomtown Rats lyrics. Here's what I mean. In the song Someone's Looking At You, from the Boomtown Rats album, The Fine Art of Surfacing, Geldof's lyrics include this quote, Most killing is committed at 90 degrees when it's too hot to breathe and it's too hot to think. There is a notion that perhaps homicide and certain elements of criminal activity go up when it's really hot outside, and maybe in the the heat of the summer, uh, judgment isn't what it could be, and people are a little bit more on edge. We see that depicted in the movies all the time, and I think there's probably there's probably a basis for it. But I don't think that can account for a jump of 24 in July up to 105 in August. When I first jumped on the page, I'm looking at the August page, I thought the August 2014 page was just part of a section of the larger picture of 2014, and so scrolling down to look at the names, I was frankly shocked by the fact that I was having a hard time finding my way through the document because I was really kind of struggling with... uh, I I thought, well, when am I going to get to September? And then I realized I'm not going to get to September because I'm actually looking at what I thought was national statistics, but I was on just the August page. And it goes on and on and on. Now, before I jump into any particular references, let me say here... That despite you know, being well over a hundred on this list, most of the ones here are referring to situations where the police were defending themselves, and I think we sell ourselves short when we act as if police do not or cannot be called upon to defend themselves. Um, you know, you have situations where a, you know a suspect pointed a shotgun at the police. Well, you know, there's this notion that. If you pull a gun on a police officer, if you uh, physically assault a police officer, you're asking for trouble, right? That's sort of the the storyline that we're being told. And yet, it's not all that, right? And as I said sort of in the intro here, I'm a little bit worried that maybe the police are always bringing a gun to a knife fight. You know, so one of these entries is going to say that there's a case in St. Louis where a suspect who appeared to be mentally unstable charged at the police with a knife, and they had no choice but to gun him down. But you know what? I've seen those videos. We live in an era where, if you see police officers show up to the scene and surround a guy, the odds are somebody across the street's got a phone with a video camera on it. That we're seeing more. Inf- we have more information than we've ever had before because we have more video than we ever had before. And maybe if you go back 20 or some odd years to look at uh, a Department of Justice, a law requiring the, the Justice Department to record and capture statistics about police brutality, maybe it ties into things like the Rodney King case. And maybe that ties into the fact that what would we have thought about the Rodney King case if somebody didn't have a camera with the footage of you know more than a handful of police officers beating a guy while he was on the ground, beating a guy when he was on the verge of being unconscious. I've seen video this year of police officers who had handcuffed a female suspect, I believe it was, somewhere in South Texas, and while she was handcuffed, and still being very mouthy and still being relatively uncooperative, beat the holy crap out of her. Basically beat her unconscious. A handcuffed person, posing a threat enough to armed police officers that they needed to subdue her in this manner? I think we've got disproportionate responses from two sides. One is, we've elevated the arms race here inside domestic law enforcement to such an extent that perhaps more more people are more likely to pull a gun on police therefore police are definitely within their rights and frankly within wisdom to defend themselves accordingly but when i saw that one st louis video we're talking about it wasn't six to eight feet away it was more than eight feet away and there were plenty of police officers there you've got a handful of police officers five six maybe shooting a guy with shoot-to-kill wounds, heart, head, when they came to the scene knowing he was mentally unstable and knowing that all he really had was a knife. And we're not talking about a steak knife. We're talking about a butter knife. We're talking about a homeless person. So we do two things as the general public that I think are wrong. On the one hand, we look at statistics like this, and we assume that every single one of them was an unjustified police shooting, and nothing could be further from the truth. The odds are that most of these police shootings had some reasonable procedural justification to them, especially in an era where shooting a fleeing suspect in the back from hundreds of feet away is probably not in the eyes of an inquiry going to be found to be an unwarranted shooting. So we've got some definitions that are a little bit, you know, perhaps a little bit off there. But on the other hand, we have cases where the person who was shot and killed, not armed at all. I'll refer to one from August 11th. Someone named Azel Ford, I believe, was the person who was shot. Uh, the Wikipedia article enters, reads this way. Ford was shot and killed by LAPD officers. According to witnesses, Ford was unarmed and on the ground when killed. According to his family, he was suffering from mental illness. So there's one example in this group of, again, way more than 100, where the person was unarmed and had cooperated, or at least was completely subdued. Michael Brown. I'll get to him in a minute. In some ways, Michael Brown is kind of the crossroads of the things I want to talk about today, where we have this, this strong divide in our country, because some people are absolutely convinced that this guy was dangerous and needed to be shot. Uh, the officer in this case, Dennis Wilson, has boldly said that he would do it all again. And I've heard some you know, political commentaries, usually on the conservative side of the political spectrum, saying that they're glad that he was shot and that they can't conceive of any other way that it would have gone down than that. That's where I've got a problem. My mentality here is very simple, and perhaps even a little bit Pollyanna. We can do better than we're doing today. If Michael Brown is the best we can do, then we need to radically reconsider everything we've assumed to be true about law enforcement, because I think we can do better. The other one that I want to focus on is John Crawford, because we're not dealing just with some of the assumptions of danger and assumptions of fear on the behalf of police, of police alone. It's also the general public. My understanding is the John Crawford case from the Dayton area of Ohio was based on somebody in the store who was afraid. In other words, the the racial fear, the racial presumptions of Joe Average Citizen feeds into this as well. Again, here's what the Wikipedia article says. Crawford was holding an air rifle next to a box that it had come from and then was shot multiple times by Beaver Creek police officers. They had come into the store. According to the family attorney's surveillance video, which I have seen from the Walmart store shows that Crawford had his back to the officers and was talking on a cell phone to his mother at the time he was shot, or at the time he was apprehended. There wasn't much apprehension, it was a show up and shoot situation. The sergeant involved returned to work just, you know, sixteen days later. According to the prosecutor, the charges of murder, reckless homicide, and negligent homicide were considered by the grand jury in September 2014, just a month later, but the grand jury determined that no charges will be filed against the two officers. I don't have any more details than that. I think what we're going to find time and time again, and we have found, is that whenever you've got a district attorney who requires heavily upon the cooperation and the testimony of police officers to make cases in trials, and frankly, even in arraignments, in some cases where uh, that initial process, that discovery process, They need the cooperation of police to be effective in their position. Therefore, they're going to be hesitant, or in some cases, obfuscating, when faced with the challenge of dealing with whether a police officer has behaved inappropriately. These police officers showed up and shot a customer carrying a piece of merchandise. I don't just have trouble with the police officers here. I do have trouble. I think procedures must have gone horrifically wrong. Walmarts in stores of that size, I believe. I've never worked in a Walmart, but I've worked in a retail store Um, uh, that's not quite as big, but you get to a retail store that size, you tend to have a security department. And so the police officer get a 911 call triggered, I'm told, by a customer in the store who was afraid of a black man with a gun. And instead of going to security, contacting security, coordinating with mall security, it looks as if they just showed up and shot the guy with the gun. The guy, again, it sounds almost justified if you say they showed up and shot the guy with the gun. You could understand how the police might get confused in that situation, but no, if I'm, if I'm the Walmart store manager, you showed up and you shot one of my customers who was about to buy something that I wanted to sell to him. We have a problem with racial fear inside the Joe Average citizen walking through the aisles of a store. We have a problem with what we might consider to be the security regimen or whatever sort of employee in charge of loss prevention might have been working that day in that Walmart store. But the bigger problem I've got is with police who came in and assumed he was a threat. Carrying an unarmed air rifle, which even had it been armed, might have been hard-pressed to do a hell of a lot of damage with it, but he wasn't trying to do any damage at all. The problem that has inflamed anger across the country is, we're not filing charges in this situation. Worse, we're going to a grand jury and sort of laundering whatever happened, hiding behind the uncertainty of things we don't know. So if you get to the uncertainty of things we don't know, I guess you have two big cases that have happened this year. One is the Eric Garner situation in Staten Island, New York, from July 17th, 2014. And that one, again, went to a grand jury. Grand jury said, man, we're not going to do anything about it. And again, there's video. So I won't go into too much detail there, except to highlight a disagreement between members of my family and I, that if you interpret the peaceful resistance of police harassment is one way of looking at it, or resisting arrest, which is the other way of looking at it, against the crime of selling unlicensed cigarettes. I've got people in my circles, circles of friends, circles of family, who might get dangerously close to suggesting that selling illegal cigarettes may or may not be a death penalty offense, but selling illegal cigarettes and not being perfectly cooperative with police is a death penalty offense. Because Again he, he didn 't take a pot shot at any police officers completely unarmed, posed no threat to them. there were at least three of them and only one of him um, uh, subduing him was not proving to be an issue at some point. His resistance was because he was dying of suffocation through an asthma attack and not a resistance due to the fact that he was trying in any way to run off. He kind of made it clear, I'm not going anywhere, but I also think you shouldn 't be harassing me and there 's no reason for me to go downtown with you to, to use the terminology so Yeah, the Eric Garner case on the one hand, and then you've got this much more complicated Michael Brown situation on the other. And I'm going to refer to the Michael Brown situation as complicated, and I want to reject the idea of anybody who would, in my opinion, deign to tell me that it's not. This is tough. This is difficult. And this is complicated. It's complicated for many reasons, but among the reasons that it's complicated is we don't have a he said, she said, because he killed her. Or in this case, he said, he said, because Michael Brown's not around to give his side of the story. And things happening the way they did, um, you know, Saturday night in August, whatever the specifics of the situation were, you've got a lot of information that that really isn't 100% clear. But what I'll say is that first I'm going to attack the rhetoric around it. I don't think that we can be 100% sure of what went on. I just think that whatever went down could have gone down better. And I frankly view people who do not think we could have done better as a nation as a group of republicans for want of a better word i'm still registered as a republican because i've never seen the point in changing that political affiliation because i think both parties are too corrupt and there's not any sense in moving from one to another they're both part of the problem i tend to vote independent in political elections for the same reason but i would turn to my fellow republicans and say that in a way that's legally valid in a court of law, and say, don't you think we can do better? And anybody who says, no, we couldn't do better, that was the best we could do. We expect a guy like Darren Wilson to gun down a few unarmed people in the street. Yeah, I don't know, a couple hundred times a year, that's going to happen. That's the best we can do. I don't think it's the best we can do. But I also want to look a little bit into why that situation became far more disruptive. There's far more unrest in that situation, far more conflict. In that suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, then in the suburb of Dayton, Ohio, or in the shooting that happened a little bit more recently in Cleveland, Ohio, where a kid was playing with a BB gun in the park and police rolled up and gunned him down almost before the brakes had applied to their vehicle. Again, um, very much a shoot first and ask questions later. And I don't know what you do if you're a police officer and you realize after you've done that that what you've killed as a kid who was carrying a toy, not a a gun, but I can tell you that the people speaking on behalf of these police officers are doing police officers all over the country an incredible injustice by painting them as people who are proud of what they did and would gladly do it again. I think my point of view on Darren Wilson is pretty simple. Um, I'm glad he quit, you know? So, and part of it is, the way I'm you know viewing the, the militarization of police is that when you... When the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, pretty soon every problem begins to look like a nail. And when you do police work from the perspective that every time you get into any sort of conflict with somebody, the answer is to use your weapon and discharge bullets in a shoot-to-kill paradigm because you don't know if he's armed or not, we're probably making a mistake. We're probably making the same mistake as having only a hammer in your toolbox. So what I've said all along, in, in deference to police, frankly in support for police, and I'm a little bit disappointed that people who are also supportive for the police don't share my point. If you haven't picked up this sort of rallying cry, we need to do a much better job putting a greater variety of tools in the toolboxes of the people who police our streets, along with the training to know when to use which tool and when to use the other tool, and an expectation of society that you're breaking out the hammer only when you're 100% convinced it's the only way to work this piece of carpentry. That we would rather be using screws. We'd rather have ratchets. We'd almost rather have wood glue than to have the furniture that we're relying upon put together solely by a hammer. We're not doing it the right way. So my question on the, Dar- on the Darren Wilson shooting of Michael Brown is, what if everybody's right? Let's go back to the stats in the very first article I shared. We have two different sets of numbers. One saying that if you're a black person, you're a lot more likely to get shot by police and need to be wary of that than a white person is, based on the stats. Number of white people in a certain age range shot by police as a percent of total population versus the number of black people. You know, just that difference there, right? So it's possible you could have two sets of stats which seem to tell a slightly different story where the facts behind them, the figures, are accurate. I'll ask the same thing here. What if everyone was right? What if Michael Brown did charge Officer Wilson? What if he did punch him in the face? What if he did reach for his gun? Um, Wouldn't Wilson still be wrong? And I realize I've probably tripped over the wire here. If somewhere in this podcast people have been waiting in the wings, with the crosshairs on me, figuratively speaking, looking for a reason to shoot down my argument, I've, I've done it. I've stepped, I've crossed the line. I've stepped out in the open and the guns are about to be blazing. Let me just reel us in for another second here. Let me just try to grant you everything that if I'm Wilson in that car, somebody's taking a shot at me. I'm a little bit worried about what his intentions are. um, Yeah, I might shoot. I might shoot and I would expect to not get a heck of a lot of hassle over it. And that's kind of the perception, the perception of Wilson. I don't know that you can necessarily blame Darren Wilson for the lies that were told on his behalf. Now, let's let's be clear about this. When you're a major television network with a particularly conservative bent, and you don't have any sort of evidence to suggest that this officer was in any kind of fatal fear, that there was no danger of him dying that day, that even if he had been punched in the face, it was not the kind of punch in the face that, that would bear out the testimony that he gave, that he was about to lose consciousness over, and that he was at risk of being shot and killed while having been knocked out in his car. And if there is anything to the truth of Wilson's account, it certainly has nothing to do with the images of X ray, of orbital bone socket fractures that were put onto television by a certain news network. A, another conservative online journal picked that up and published it. I saw it through Facebook from a friend of mine, and his attitude was, You see this? You see this? Here? Do you understand what happened now? I told you I was right. My attitude was, Hang on a second. What you've shown me, if this picture is even true, which I didn't believe it was true, turned out to be a total fabrication, an absolute hoax. But if it had turned out to be true, then I just said, you've given me the explanation for bullets three, four, five, and six. Bullets one and two, I get, you know, what I don't get is the rest of the clip being unloaded. I don't get the 911 call not being, you know, immediate. Or if it was immediate, why the 911 call was being hidden from the public We'll get to that in a minute when we talk about the unrest that this situation generated and why it was different from the killing of John Crawford in in fundamental ways. But the problem that I've got with it is that it didn't turn out to be true. So people are making up evidence on Wilson's behalf. Even the images of Wilson in the hospital, the coloration on his cheek don't look terribly different from the coloration of his cheek from images that were taken as he was going in and out of the grand jury testimony months later. So... Let's just grant for the sake of argument that, let me, let me even grant even more than that. Let me grant you that, that Michael Brown was a dangerous person. He was out looking for trouble. He know, knew that he'd broken, he'd broken the law earlier that day, and he had reason to assume the police might be after him. And that even if we kind of have this sense, whether we can trust the testimony presented to the grand jury or not is a very open question. But we, we have this sense that maybe Wilson wasn't even aware of that. This appeared to be a jaywalking stop. And my question all along has been this. If a jaywalking stop can turn into a fatal shooting, then something went wrong. Frankly, if a, shop ha- if a shoplifting arrest and apprehension can turn into a fatal shooting, then something went wrong. We can do better than this. And so part of the reason that I'm glad Wilson has left the police force is that Wilson doesn't think he could have done any better. He missed the point entirely. So I'm talking with family members and trying to get a sense around this whole thing. My take was that we don't know what happened and what was said that night. Something led this teenager who was going to be going to college in a month. Ha, knew that might happen. Something led this teenager that was going to be going to college in roughly a month. And you know, my brother even objects to the idea that I'm calling him a teenager. If he's 18 years old, if he's 19 years old, he's technically a teenager. Um, he may be legally an adult, but he's still, he's still a a high school graduate who's not yet a college freshman and frankly i can remember what i was like at that age i told a friend in minnesota that by her standard i should have been shot and killed when i was 17 years old if we're going to send police out in the streets to shoot in the heart and the head anybody who's got a bad attitude and talks back to the cops well guess what at 17 years old i didn't have the best attitude about police and i can find at least one occasion when i probably did a little bit of talking back so I, these are not death penalty offenses, I guess is what I'm getting at, right? But the thing we don't know is what was said. What was the dialogue? What was the conversation between these two that would cause Michael Brown to turn and charge a police officer's car? Even appropriate conversations on political issues is about nothing at all. And I hope, hope it's about something, <laughs> to be honest. But if it's about nothing at all, it's about asking these other questions. Because to me, this is the obvious question. This question is on my mind, to put it that way, and I can't get past the fact that I don't believe this guy was on some sort of serial killer rampage. Michael Bram wasn't the monster that he's being persuaded to be by the conservative press. Now, he also isn't the saint he's being you know, painted to be by the liberal press. He had shoplifted. He had reason to believe that maybe the police officer is going to apprehend him for that reason. But all of that might lead to a KG conversation, uh, an opportunity to perhaps talk your way out of something. But what was said between him and the police officer that turned the situation into a moment of rage? If you believe Darren Wilson's story, something that Darren Wilson or somebody else said or did set this guy off. When I talk about having other tools in the toolbox, among those tools is the, the ability... It's a skill. It can be taught to not escalate situations in the direction of violence. But you know what? There's some people out there who just want to. I can't explain why. I don't know if that accurately describes Darren Wilson. I don't have enough information to say if that's what went down between him and Michael Brown that night. But there's a reason why I don't know. There's a case in Florida that was published just about a month ago. A police officer had uh, arrested a drunk um, college-aged girl for DUI and had taken her in. It was her vehicle, so he had apprehended her and her female uh, companion in the car. Her female companion may have been under the influence as well. It was not relevant because she wasn't drunk and disorderly. She may not have been underage. For the sake of argument, let's say she was 21. So she's either under the age of 21 and not inebriated at all or she was 21 or older and it's irrelevant whether she was inebriated because she wasn't disorderly and she wasn't driving but she ended up needing a ride home because her friend was going to spend the night in the drunk tank and that car was being impounded and the police officer who drove her home as it turned out uh, raped her raped her at gunpoint including the threat that he would kill her and perhaps her family if she told anyone so Taking advantage of the situation, a rapist in the police force. The interesting thing about it, though, to me was that this guy had a sterling performance record. From the perspective of his police department, he was a stellar officer, no issues. The only negative marks on his entire resume, allegedly, according to the police, the media reports I've seen, was that every now and then he wasn't exactly where he needed to be, that he would show up late to certain um, meetings, or he might be the last person to show up on a call, that there were times when maybe his supervisor didn't know exactly where he was, and now there's allegations from other women that they were uh, raped by him as well, in similar circumstances. Because he's driving the car, they're at his mercy, Uh, they're supposed to trust him, he's a police officer, he's there to to take care of things, he's going to drive her home in a situation where she would otherwise be stranded at the police station. There might have been other occasions, maybe more than a handful of other occasions, when he committed the same kinds of crimes. We will see. But here's the trick. He gets away with it if he just shoots her in the head. He gets away with it if he shoots her and says that, uh, use the condom. Try not to leave any DNA evidence inside her body, but if he shoots her, then he doesn't have to worry about whether or not uh, she can tell anybody. Just go ahead and make good on the promise. And and if there's an investigation, you drove her home, she was angry about the fact that you arrested her friend, she went for your gun. Because apparently anytime somebody goes for your gun, you've got carte blanche to unload seven or eight bullets into them. You know, and you can shoot to kill, shoot to the heart, shoot to the head, be done with them because they're, they become not a U.S. citizen who's making a criminal mistake. They become an enemy combatant who needs to be neutralized. So here's kind of the scenario that I played out in my head, trying to make sense of the Michael Brown, Darren Wilson dynamic. And what I came up with was something I think I've shared before in one of two ways. I'd either shared it on a previous inappropriate conversations called fighting to end fighting talking about my relatively, in fact, maybe even very conservative view on warfare, that I don't have a problem launching the weapons. I prefer would not to launch the nuclear weapons, but I don't have a problem sending missiles into a country uh, and doing that in lieu of, of ground troops into the country. Um, to me, that it's okay to draw a line somewhere, and if a rogue nation crosses that line, especially if they cross that line in a way that violates international law and there's a consensus from the international community that something needs to be done, I think we should be aggressive about how we handle those situations. And uh, that podcast in the past, Fighting to Win Fighting, talks all about it. Or I may have talked about it on a previous Martin Luther King Day episode. Not the first one, and call it 2011, but maybe one in 2012. Hitting the same kind of question. And the way I looked at it was to share some dialogue from the Maltese Falcon. Trying to get into the mind of somebody who is... Willing to escalate things to the point of deadly physical violence. Why would you do that? And what does it mean? And I just want to share the dialogue. I went looking online for a clip, but couldn't find one. So you'll have to bear with me. It's a conversation between Sam Spade, our hero, the private detective who has possession of the Maltese Falcon and is very unwilling to just hand it over to Casper Gutman, one of the ringleaders of the bad guys, because Sam Spade's got questions he hasn't answered yet, including who killed his partner. So if you're not familiar with the 1941 film version of The Maltese Falcon, well worth watching, great performances by uh, Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet, and as I think I've said the last time I tried to share this line of dialogue, I'm not going to try to do it justice. I I couldn't possibly. So I'll just tell you who's talking and read you the the exchange, the quote from the film screenplay. Spade says this, if you kill me, how are you going to get the bird? And I know you can't afford to kill me, so how are you going to scare me into giving it to you? Gudman answers, Well, sir, there are other means of persuasion besides killing and threatening to kill. Spade answers, Yes, that's that's true. But they're none of them any good unless the threat of death is behind them. You see what I mean? You start something, I'll make it a matter of you having to kill me or call it off. Gudman answers, That's an attitude, sir, that calls for the most delicate judgment on both sides. Because, as you know, sir... In the heat of action, men are likely to forget where their best interests lie and let their emotions carry them away. To which Spade says, The trick from my angle is to make make my play strong enough to tie you up, but not make you so mad enough that you want to bump me off against your better judgment. By gad, sir, you are a character. One of the best films of its era, The Maltese Falcon. So what does that say and how does that inform this question of what actually went down between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson? Well to speak cynically, and no one can prove me wrong because the one person who can actually verify any story that Darren Wilson might tell who can corroborate any eyewitness who clearly has not enough information to get to a uh, definitive grand jury answer so it's uh, it's my word against the world it's my sp- I'm free to speculate let's put it that way that if you're if you're Darren Wilson. And something Michael Brown did to make you mad is more than you're ready to just let go today. And it could have been, you no know, it could have been just his attitude. There are some people out there who would suggest that it was nothing more than the color of his skin. I'm not willing to entertain that idea. I'm going to, again, dial it back, stay in this moderate middle here a little bit. But I'm going to tell you that there's a problem here. There's a problem in this situation we haven't begun to address because we're not asking the right questions. All you've got to do if you're Darren Wilson Drop an N-bomb on this kid. All you gotta do is say something about his mother. All you gotta do is push his buttons just enough that he's bad enough to head towards your car and you hope maybe slap you in the face, punch you in the face, or get anywhere near arguably reaching for his gun. He's just gotta be close enough to you that if you shoot him, he bleeds on you. Because if you can get him close enough to you that if you shoot him, he bleeds on you, then you can do whatever you want. You can shoot him six more times and it doesn't matter because you did what Sam Spade talks about not doing. You've, crossed, you've got him to cross the line. You've got him to play his hand. You've got him to tip it over just enough. Because you can kill him if you just get him mad enough. Police have a tremendous amount of power to exercise this over anyone who doesn't have a great deal of zen in their life, for want of a better word. And because I don't have any other explanation, any other logical justification for what would make Michael Brown turn in this matter... I've got to look at Darren Wilson and say that maybe you kind of triggered this because you kind of wanted to shoot somebody on the street tonight, but that seems extreme. But at the very least, you could have done better. Whatever he said, whatever you said, whatever he said back, whatever you said to that could have de escalated the situation instead of escalating it. And if it was going to escalate the situation further, you could have called for backup. Something could have been done differently. Now, why is this Michael Brown case, which to me seemingly is the least interesting of maybe let's look, I'll just cite three: Garner strangled to death in police custody, unarmed, not resisting arrest, except for you know being uncooperative in a verbal sort of a way. Uh, John Crawford completely unaware that he was actually being apprehended by police. He was shopping that day, and Michael Brown. Why is Michael Brown the one that's attracted the greatest? You know, sort of outcry. Why the demonstrations there? Why the violence in the street over that situation? And because to me, it seems like the least of the three. John Crawford is a situation where police officers should have lost their job and been arrested. Uh, I can think of maybe one of the several police officers in Staten Island who definitely should have lost his job and probably been arrested. He needed to lose his job because he violated police policy. Use of a chokehold, use of a stranglehold, and he hasn't lost his job violated police prop policy, uh, killed a citizen in the process, and even if he's a citizen who's committing lots of crimes, maybe even more crimes than just selling illegal unlicensed cigarettes, you still killed a citizen when you didn't have to. And clearly, somebody who, again, you don't want to be strangling somebody who's screaming that they can't breathe. It's something common sense should take over. But this one, one police officer, one dead you know, young adult, this one seems like the one that would be the least likely, the least cut and dry, the most, with the most uncertainty about it. Why the violence in the street? We've well, got to reel it all the way back to the month of August. And remember that at first, there wasn't any violence in the street at all. There were demonstrations. There were protests. There might have been some shouting, in fact. But there wasn't any violence. People weren't throwing stuff. People weren't burning buildings. They weren't charging the police. They were simply demonstrating. What they were demonstrating was to get an answer to a question. Why doesn't the family have information about what happened to their kid? The police in this situation didn't just, in my opinion, probably ramp up the level of conflict at the Wilson and Brown level that led to the shooting in the first place. But every step of the way after that seemed to be ramping up the conflict between Brown and his family, Brown and his church, Brown and the rest of the African-American community in Ferguson, Missouri. You want to tell the family what's going on, especially if at first this isn't police handling the victim of a criminal. This is police handling the victim of an accidental shooting, an unfortunate shooting, an event. And even if you do handle it like he's a suspect in a crime, I think you've got to do it better than that. So the initial protests in the street were protests saying, what happened? And if, why aren't you telling the family what happened? And why aren't you telling the lawyers of the family what happened? If the police just initially, and the DA or whoever, just initially answer those questions. Answer the questions in such a way that the facts can be captured in such a way that if a grand jury gets together two months later, there's better better discovery that has been done in advance of that, so we might have more answers to these questions. So it looks suspicious, I think, probably to somebody who has been in a situation where you're worried that the police are truly representing your needs, that you don't feel that you're being... um, either protected or served by by police officers. It makes it very uncomfortable for you to have confidence that you can trust the police when they're not telling you what happened. And then the response from the police to these at-the-time-still-peaceful protests was to impose a curfew and to enga- and to get up in their riot gear and shoot rubber bullets into the crowd. I know this because I've seen the pictures. I've seen the pictures of United Methodist and United Church of Christ pastors who were shot by those bullets. And you can say, well, it's just a rubber bullet, Greg. That's no big deal. You ever been shot by a rubber bullet? You transfer anything at that speed into the belly of an individual, and you're going to do some damage. And I'm not saying it's maybe that everything went exactly right and there was no risk of fatal damage, but you're still shooting a clergy person in the street whose purpose there is to help a peaceful protest stay peaceful. And that peaceful protest did stay peaceful and only became unpeaceful when the police reacted as if their authority was being challenged, and how dare this set of arguably enemy combatants rise up and speak out against them. Somewhere along the way, that police department in particular, but perhaps others, have lost the script of who they are serving. I've worked in retail for 25 years now, and and one of the questions that I, I constantly ask people when I feel like we're getting off track is, who's the customer? Who's paying for all this? If we're making a decision about what to do with our you know, cash register systems or whatever, we can make a lot of decisions that are good for the finance department. We can make decisions that are good for the cashier, but you're not going to do the right thing unless you figure out what's good for your customer. You can hope that whatever whatever is efficient for the cashier is also going to translate into efficiency for the customer, make the line move faster. There's going to be some wins that way. But every now and then it makes sense to ask, who is the customer in this situation? And i can got to tell you, the taxpayers are paying money to the police department. in expectation that the police department is going to perform a service. That service doesn't include shooting rubber bullets at clergy. Because the police are outraged at the audacity of a member of the church standing out there in the street saying, what happened? Tell us why. If there's misinformation that's happened here, if I come along to this podcast, look back on it a couple of years down the line, and we actually do get more information than we have today, I suspect we never will. But if we do, and that information makes me look nice, ooh, I'm kind of embarrassed. Uh, it, it does turn out to be true that the hands-up, don't-shoot thing was just a bunch of BS. The hands-up, don't-shoot narrative came about not because the family had great information and were reacting to it, They had no information. No information doesn't leave people in their homes quietly accepting whatever the authority figure doles out. It leads to a narrative being created that seems to fit. And if that narrative was inaccurate or incorrect, if it led to a lot of unrest in the street, it came from the initial refusal to answer the basic, obvious questions. The refusal to say, who is my customer? Or to reel it back into the the police work, to put yourself in the citizen's shoes and say, if my son was shot there are certain things I would need to know. And if my goal is to make sure that those people, whoever they may be, never get those answers, don't deserve those answers, or unworthy of those answers, because I've made a judgment against their son that I'm now translating up through the generations to the parents and grandparents, we've made a crucial mistake, and we can do it better than that. So inside that level of hostility... Triggered and turned violent through police behavior by all reporters' accounts, and by that I mean the reporters who either weren't arrested and thrown in jail by the police for doing their job, or who subsequently got out of jail and told their story. It only got worse from there. So when you say, well, those, those crazy people burned down their own businesses and buildings and were rioting in the streets, you've got to reel it back from there and ask the better question. So the question, the first question I've asked I can't get an answer to in the Michael Brown case is, what triggered Michael Brown? right? If everything Darren Wilson says is true, what set him off? But here's the other one. We know what set off the protesters. When those images were put on CNN and Fox News showing us people throwing stuff and burning stuff and all that, we know what happened there. I believe that the press conference called by that district attorney after the grand jury findings were revealed could not have been more designed to create a violent riot if he had tried. He is either The most unlucky person of his own incompetence in the history of law enforcement, or perhaps, just throwing it out there as a possibility, don't know, Wrap this around three layers of allegedly, but maybe he wanted a riot to happen that night. Maybe he didn't want to have to answer any questions about the legalities of what happened inside that grand jury room. Maybe he didn't want to have to explain how his grand jury was handled differently from any other grand jury he's ever managed before. Or how, if he manages in this way, what makes him so different from every other district attorney all over this country? He didn't want to answer those questions. He didn't have to. Because sometime in the middle of the afternoon, he knew, with the sun shining outside, what the verdict was. He announced to the media that there was a verdict, and that it was going to be announced later that day. I don't know why you make an announcement of a verdict under the cover of darkness, with the National Guard called in, unless you're ready for a fight because you know you're picking it, why wouldn't you, if you had to wait, to figure out your communication game plan? You tell the media the grand jury's done, but they're not going to answer any questions. We're putting together our formal communication plan. It's going to happen first thing tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. We'll we'll meet you at City Hall. And would that communication plan include the family? we got a grand jury situation here. The defendant is the police officer. The victim... Is Michael Brown. Now, it may have played out that maybe we look at it and say, well, there is no victim because that's what the grand jury ruled. But at the time the grand jury was doing its job, the grand jury was going to find one thing and one thing only did this police officer commit a violent crime or not? And at no point was the family anything else other than the family of Michael Brown was nothing more than a victim's rights group in this situation. They're the beloved of somebody who was shot and killed. If you're going to make a grand jury, if you're going to tell the media at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon that you've got a verdict and you're going to talk about it tonight um, just in time for the news to capture all the images of angry people in the street, if you're going to do that, uh, when do you tell the family? Michael Brown's family, I'm told, found out about this information from the news. So if you're a victim's rights person, that's th- these funny little ironies happen, right? So if you're the kind of person who thinks that militarizing the media, the, the mil- militarizing the police is a great idea, we should do that. And you think that, um, common citizens with guns is a great idea, although you're not really wild about maybe black people buying guns on Walmart, but you know, most, most of the time, common people with guns is a good idea. It's going to tamp down crime. All that. If you're that kind of person, you probably have an incredible heart and focus on victims' rights. We had Victims' Bill of Rights rule the bills in the 1980s and 90s, spreading all over this country to make sure that a grand jury wouldn't come to a verdict and a district attorney make an announcement to the media and tell everybody but the family instead of the family. And yet that's exactly what happened in this case. So you look at it and you say, could you have antagonized this family, the people who are supporting this family, and outside instigators, more if you tried? And if this particular district attorney could have made the situation worse than he did, I'd love somebody to walk me through how he could have made it worse. I guess he could have shot somebody from the podium while he was answering reporters' questions. I mean, what he, what he would have had to have do to make the situation worse would be, So outrageous that it wouldn't even work on a Saturday Night Live sketch. What he did was almost a Saturday Night Live sketch. So, looks to me like you wanted a riot, you got a riot, and what was the purpose of the riot? Stop people from asking questions. Legal questions that perhaps should have been asked, didn't get asked, because we were instead talking about people rioting in the street. So you can point your finger all you want to and say, well, easily manipulated people. Guess what? On some level, we're all easily manipulated. Maybe Michael Brown was easily manipulated, too. Who knows? We ever get to the truth of the story and might find out that Officer Darren Wilson was somehow manipulated as well. The reality is that I was getting uh, feedback, information. The news reports that were being shared back to me led me to say, first they were things saying, this isn't real, it doesn't happen, it's not that common. Which basically led me to say, okay, every time I run into one of these stories, I'm just going to put it on the inappropriate conversations wall. And to be honest with you, from August until maybe sometime in the middle of December, I didn't post them all. So if you're a reader of Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook and said, Good Lord, Greg, stop posting all these stories about police shooting people. Well, just know that I showed tremendous restraint. I didn't go look for them. And when I found them, I didn't share them all. There were more. And if you want to read the deep background here, you can go read it on Inappropriate Conversations. I don't take anything off the page. And it gives you kind of an insight into the research that I'm doing as I go along. So don't be surprised if there's a different drummer who recently died from the acting community. Because when I'm moved by something... That's kind of where I go with it, right? But the the things that I I began to get back when somebody said, some people decided, well, yeah, okay, there really is something there. Then the focus turned to the new Black Panther Party. And the, the, I'm going to call it the outrageous claim I was presented with, was that, and this was when the protests were still arguably peaceful. I mean, this was way before the grand jury um, uh, came back with its verdict. It may have been before the grand jury even started its work, probably before the grand jury was convened. Um, maybe at that time, the uh, the argument in the streets were whether or not there should be a grand jury at all, whether there should be charges filed and evaluated at all. The new Black Panther Party had allegedly showed up in town with a commission to kill as many police officers as possible. I just told my friend, I said, you're looking at this thing the wrong way. For one thing, if you're right, we're going to know soon enough. Because with that many police and right gear out on the street, if a group of armed um, new Black Panther militia wanted to kill as many police officers as possible. We're going to have 50 dead cops before we even know what happened to us. That No matter how well-armed they are, if you set snipers all over town, you got all these police basically sitting, standing in a row as sitting duck targets. I said, just because a, a, an anarchist group, or whatever you want to call them, is trying to grab headlines by saying hyperbolic things doesn't make it true. The reality is we've come along. All these months later, and the new Black Panther Party hasn't, to my knowledge, hasn't killed any police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, probably hasn't been responsible for killing any police officer in the greater St. Louis metropolitan area. Now, we did have two police officers who were shot and killed in New York City by a deranged person who'd already committed um, potentially fatal gun violence earlier that day in Baltimore, whose tweets seemed to indicate that maybe he had an attitude about the police and was looking to settle some sort of score, and the police in New York City lost their crap over it. And... I was in New York City just a week ago, and I was there trying to measure you know, where's the mood of the town. And I've been in New York City several times in the last few years, and I can tell you that the mood of the town to me didn't feel any different. Now, then I wasn't there during the funerals, right? But the week after the last funeral, things seemed, you know, to me fairly quiet and calm. The police had threatened in New York that they weren't going to investigate any crime, they weren't going to intervene, they weren't going to engage, they were just going to, they were too afraid of random violence from angry citizens that they were just going to do the minimum and i think maybe they thought that that was going to create some huge uptick in violence in the streets and that the the innocent people in some of these relatively high crime areas were going to rue the day but that's not what happened the report that i read in the new republic by somebody who lived in one of those areas basically said yeah this is the best thing that's ever happened to us because the level of just ordinary everyday attitude and police harassment of common citizens has gone completely down none of it's going on meaning that a lot of the violence that that was generated either against police or retaliatory violence against other innocent citizens went down with it. It was an oasis in what had become a desert in the latter half of 2014 in terms of the way police interact with everyday citizens so I was there in the wake of that and I can tell you that. Didn't feel more in danger on the street or in cabs than I would have at any other visit. The police dialing it down a little bit seemed to have... It seemed to have a reaction that I don't think the police could have ever anticipated. And they also weren't telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God, either. Because there was a uh, story while I was there of somebody armed in Times Square and some you know, uh, Homeland Security interception of a threat of violence, and the police were all over it. I mean, I was walking the streets of Times Square um, the next day. Police presence was still high, very high, uh, if you buy the claim that they were going to dial down their policing and let the citizens fare for themselves. And to my knowledge, whatever came from that incident was handled quickly and professionally. So let me go back to it. We want these situations being handled quickly And professionally. Uh, Using incendiary language, picking a fight with a disenfranchised member of the community, instigating that person to violence, and gunning them down as a result is not quick and professional. Is there anybody in the Ferguson Police Department today who would honestly say, Boy, I'm glad that whole Darren Wilson thing went down the way it was? He should have shot a kid a long time ago. This was great for us. It's not great for the police, it's not great for the citizens. It apparently isn't great for the district attorneys in the area because it's revealed some real issues about law enforcement, the use of military equipment, their response to peaceful protest, uh, their ability to turn a peaceful protest into a violent protest. Uh, if nothing else, I've become persuaded that there are certain people, perhaps all the way up to the governor's office in the state of Missouri, who are in they're in those key elected positions, and those key appointed positions for a reason. They are persuasive. They can persuade common, ordinary, everyday people to burn their own city down, if you believe the rhetoric that we've been told by some parts of the media. So, that's the issue. So, I guess here's my question. And one of the problems that I've got with this notion of, as soon as a citizen doesn't react in just the perfect way to the police, they probably can be shot. If you can be shot for resisting arrest, and if what Eric Garner did on the streets of Staten Island was a resisting arrest... Apparently having a conversation where you're disagreeing with a police officer about his interpretation of your behavior can get you strangled to death with impunity because you resisted arrest. My goodness, I've resisted arrest by making a left turn when I normally would have made a right because I thought I might have been seen by the traffic cop as rolling through a stop sign and thought I better take an unpredictable turn into a business and avoid any potential apprehension. Should he just show up in the parking lot of that dentist's office and gun me in the head for resisting arrest? Our standard of resisting arrest is, let's just say it's a bit too liberal. I think is the right grammatical way to term it. Our sense of resisting arrest is so liberal that somebody merely taking offense to what a police officer says is justification for shooting them. And I say justification for shooting them again to be to be very differential. A list of hundreds of people during the summertime and since um, killed. In fatally wounded, in encounters with the police, most of them, they did stuff that you shouldn't do, and that kind of should be obvious, that we ought not be pulling knives on police. We shouldn't be charging, we shouldn't be punching them in the face, shouldn't be trying to commandeer their vehicles. Yes, I get all that, right? But we also can do better than policing in such a way that always forces things to that Maltese falcon solution. We're always going to push it because I'm not going to cooperate with you. You're going to have to kill me. Well, you know, guess what? If I'm a parent of a teenager or a college age kid, I am going to be doing exactly what some of the videos that I've seen online and recently posted to my Facebook page about. I'm going to, warn those, I'm going to be warning my, my kids and my friends at that age group. Don't, don't put the police in a position where to get cooperation from you, they're going to have to kill you. Because if you need more evidence that the police are going to kill you, you're crazy. But I also would say to the police, if you need more evidence that we need to be doing our police work a little bit better, you're crazy too. Since when is the standard of police work being done well in our country? The number of people you shot, in some cases on routine traffic stops. saw a video from one of the Carolinas. This police officer was subsequently fired and arrested. So don't believe anybody who says that it never happens. It just happens far too rarely for my taste. But this police officer, had he was a black driver of a pickup, let's call it, Um, he had come out of the car at police direction, officer holding a gun, hands in the air the whole nine yards. The officer tells him he needs to see his driver's license and registration. The guy says, it's in my car. And when he reaches into his car to get his wallet, to get his driver's license and his registration, the cop shot him. In this case... The the police, I'm going to word it in a confrontational way, and please don't, please don't think I'm trying to be incendiary here, but the police officer got unlucky. He got really unlucky because he didn't succeed in shooting to kill him. He just wounded him. Didn't actually wound him so badly that his life was actually in any sort of serious, serious danger. But the cop lost his job as a result. He faced arrest for discharging his weapon illegally because the person complied with him. Cooperated, did exactly as he was told. Police officer shot the man for doing exactly what he was told, lost his job as a result. But if the cop shoots him in the heart and kills him, does the police officer face charges for murder? Or do we get a potentially fabricated story about a weapon? You don't have to watch enough cop shows on TV to know that maybe the police officer could have been able to drop a weapon into the hands of the dead body. And I am convinced that the way our country is polarized on this issue today, that if somebody was actually shooting cell phone video of a police officer shooting and killing a suspect in a situation just like that one in the Carolinas, and pulled a gun out of the police officer's glove compartment, wiped the police officer's print off it, stuck it in the dead man's hand, and then put the gun inside the car, if the whole thing was on film, if it seemed obvious that it was you know, an illegal shooting, an illegal shooting with a framed job to go with it, that we still might not be able to get a grand jury to find that police officer guilty of murder. Because with no eyewitness, with no victim surviving to tell their side of the story, I've just yet to see any evidence that the dead person is going to be represented adequately in the grand jury room. And that the, maybe the, the heart and soul of the police, the heart and soul of the district attorney's office is not going to be on the side of trying to find justice. For the individual, so I want to say one more incendiary thing, and then i 'll veer over into our different drummer, hoping i 've covered as much ground as I wanted to cover today, doing so with virtually yeah no notes for me, I wanted to try to put together some of the principles behind the Ferguson situation and Darren Wilson and the torture case coming out of the revelations of what this country has been doing to um, suspects in homeland security situations over the past several years. And to me the concept that we want to dwell on here is this concept of being innocent until proven guilty. So in the case of, of Michael Brown, even if he even if we got a film of him shoplifting, even if there's no argument that he was jaywalking down the middle of the street, he's still innocent until proven guilty. The second, the apprehension process leads to death. We have usurped this constitutional principle of being innocent until proven guilty, and right now, the way we're handling these law enforcement situations in this country, there's no consequences for that. There are zero consequences for essentially treading upon the principles that are foundational to our Bill of Rights, and this is a problem that we've got to deal with. Because the second you execute the suspect, then that person is basically just as guilty as you say they are, I guess be the standard I would use. And I can understand why people in a community that has had struggles getting the right kind of service from police officers in the past might really have an issue with the idea that you're no longer innocent until proven guilty once you get shot. You're as guilty as the police officer says you were. Let's compare that to this whole enemy combatant situation, because by and large, the people that we were torturing or Whatever word you want to use for it, the, the uh, you know, uh, exotic rendering of interrogation technique, whatever the, the buzzword is, they hadn't even had a military trial yet. They may have been arraigned, sufficient to be remanded, they were being held, but the kind of experiences they were having were not experiences of a brutal you know, prison scenario where they'd been you know thrown away and the keys been thrown out. They were essentially still waiting for the disposition of their case. So, when you talk about the professions of Officer Wilson's innocence and how important it is for him to be innocent until proven guilty, I'm tempted to ask for a Geneva Convention on what is currently the pre-Miranda standard in the southern parts of this state, of this country. That perhaps in some parts of the Deep South, you're not innocent until proven guilty, and you don't have the the right to remain silent, and you don't have the right not to be beaten for no reason. Ferguson, Missouri, had a case several months before the Michael Brown case, of a person who was uh, parked underneath an overpass, getting out of a severe rainstorm, waiting for the rains to subside so that he could take his car in, uh, gas it up, maybe get his vehicle looked at, when a police officer pulled him over, uh, checked his license plate, got his name, determined that his name was the same name as somebody else who was wanted on some warrants for armed robbery or something, but it was not the same guy it was not the same guy in a way that probably should have been obvious because even though the first name and last name were the same the middle name wasn't so they arrest the wrong guy the only real crime he might have committed would have been loitering he stopped his vehicle in a rainstorm so severe that his windshield wipers weren't keeping up with the water and he thought it was safer piece of discretion to try to wait some of that out and get back on the road rather than drive in those conditions when they arrested him they put him in a cell And because he was uncooperative, uh, demanding outrageous things like wanting to know why he was arrested, they beat the holy crap out of him. And realizing that they had the wrong man, knowing that they probably weren't going to be able to get away with beating up an innocent man, they needed to register some charges against him. And this same Ferguson Police Department is accused, and actually I think the record bears it out, of pressing charges against him for defacing um, state and city property and his crime was bleeding on their uniforms while they were beating him senseless in a false arrest of the wrong man with improper police procedures all over the place. If you've got a community that has dealt with this kind of policing before, they're not you can understand why they might demand some Geneva Convention standards. But let me go back to this new Black Panther Party idea. What do we call it torture? If the new Black Panther Party had somehow gotten their hands on Darren Wilson, taking him to their secret hideout, just to make the the story as cartoonish as possible, because as originally presented to me, it was very, very cartoonish. But what if they interrogated Wilson in exactly the same manner as our military has been interrogating people, where most Americans are describing it as torture, it's obviously torture, but there are some people, some political conservatives, who are intent on calling it something other than torture, would you be quick to say that, hey, hang on a second, that's completely inappropriate, that's illegal, you can't take the law in your own hands, Darren Wilson is innocent until proven guilty, and this kind of interrogation technique is not the kind of thing the police would do, it's more like torture. It, if it's torture if we do it to somebody that we ought not do it with who's an American citizen, it's torture if we do it to somebody from another country. The standard of what is torture is pretty simple. Uh, look it up in the dictionary, seek the definition, and apply it with wisdom, not with a strict legalistic set of loopholes that says, "Well, I didn't really make him simulate drowning because simulate drowning requires 90 seconds underwater. And we only did 88 seconds underwater. You know crap like that, right We, we would be outraged. You would have you, know, uh, you would have pro-police, paramilitary vigilantes in the streets hunting down these people for doing that to an officer of the law. And yet we are doing that to people, uh, citizens of the world, and in some cases, perhaps even citizens of our country, it's not totally clear who's who and what's what on all the details there, with, without, without so much as a second glance. So I think what really is needed here, and where the problem is, is there has to be a call for justice. And that's what's absolutely missing. Again, in the month of August alone, I'm talking about 105 of these cases, Most of which, you could understand why the police officers responded to defend themselves. There's a a hostage situation, there's a domestic situation, turned violent, whatever the cases may be. But there's some of them where there's no explanation whatsoever. It just looks like a police officer got mad and decided he was going to solve the problem all by himself, or even in some cases, all by herself. So we kind of have that issue. We've got to make sure that we deal with it and understand that we got something severely broken, not just in our grand jury process, but in our media, that we're manipulating people and manipulating the media in such a way that we're not the least bit concerned if it causes severe property damage. We've got to do better. We're better than this. We've got to do better. So I'm recording this in such a way that there's a chance it's going to get released on Martin Luther King Day. Um, It's a live recording, so so far I haven't had to make... Any edits, although, you know, telephone ringing, a couple of stammers here and there. There's stuff I would have edited out, but I'm just going to let it go as is. I think I've succeeded in my goal. I hope I've succeeded in my goal of just making a, uh, an unedited recording. But as I go into the different drummers segment, I want to restate some things from uh, Dr. King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail. To me, this is such an important work that I tend to recommend it to friends who are clergy if you're a member of the clergy, especially if you're politically conservative and you have not read the letter from a Birmingham jail from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., shame on you. This should have come up before now. Shouldn't be hearing about it on an Inappropriate Conversations podcast. Let's put it that way. Because what he has to say to the clergy is telling. He's essentially saying that on this question of privilege, you've got the ability, while you're sitting at home, preparing for your sermon in church on Sunday, uh, maybe going out after church and having lunch with one of your parishioners, you've got the ability to say, you know, can you just dial it down a little bit? I'm totally on board with the idea of you guys getting equality, but but do you have to be in the media? Do there have to be you know, street protests? Do you have to be getting arrested to make your point? Can't you just take it more slow? Maybe in 20 or 30 years that some of the problems you're facing will go away. Eventually, all of these, these elderly people people who have propped up these Jim Crow laws are just going to die out. Are they? I offer you Duck Dynasty as an example of some people who, given the chance to put those Jim Crow laws right back in place, would not only do it, but would do it and expect the black people who live in this country to thank him for it. We're not better than we used to be, and it doesn't make sense to wait for a better time. You have privilege if you say we can wait for a better time. And Martin Luther King spoke directly into it by making the point that when you're not sitting in Birmingham jail, you've got a lot more privilege on how you decide the time horizon should be on fixing the problems in our country. When you're sitting in a Birmingham jail, the problems need to be solved right now. But here's the quote I like best from that letter, quoting King. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label." Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Martin Luther an extremist? So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we, will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Martin Luther King raises these questions, referring to today's different drummer, Amos of Tekawa. I've gone longer than I thought that I would, and I've gone longer uh, enough that I'm going to cheat my different drummer just a little bit, but the main thing I wanted to do with Amos today, talking about this Old Testament prophet, was to quote him, and to quote him in a way that would tie out with some of the language and the rhetoric that people who've listened to speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. would recognize. Uh, Quoting Wikipedia, just to frame it up a little bit, Amos was one of the Twelve Minor Prophets, To be honest, I've always resented the idea of minor prophets. I know that it's just about how big the book is or how small the book is. It's basically a number-of-pages distinction. Because in some ways, you could argue that Amos was more important than many of the bigger names out there. An older contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah, Amos was active in 750 BC during the reign of Jeroboam II. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, but preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. He wrote at a time of relative peace and prosperity and neglect of religion. Speaking as Greg, this often happens, right? The richer and fatter and happier you are, the less focused on justice you're inevitably going to be. And when you take that to the extent of not feeling spiritual anymore or hiding your spirituality under a cloak of religious legalism, I'm describing the United States today, by the way, if you haven't noticed, um, then there tends to be the kinds of problems that prophets need to speak into. And that's what Amos did. Quoting again from the article, Amos spoke against increased disparity between the very wealthy and the very poor. His major themes of social justice, God's omnipotence, and divine judgment became staples of prophecy. The book of Amos is attributed to him. Wikipedia talks about his primary teachings being of two sorts. First, prayers and sacrifices do not make up for bad deeds. This would tie in a little bit to the Protestant Reformation that would come later, where, among the other things that the, um, the elder, Martin Luther, was saying at the time of the Protestant Reformation was, you cannot just buy indulgences to make up for the sins you know you're going to commit. Similar idea. Prayers and sacrifices do not make up for bad deeds. And the second one is that behaving justly is more important than ritual. These are themes that we'll see. In the quote from the fifth chapter of, of the book of Amos, That I want to share today, but I will say that this all ties in in a very direct way to the most recent episode of Walk the Earth. Transparently, I will tell you that the question in Walk the Earth 22, the most recent episode of that podcast, whether the prophets of old have been or need to be updated by contemporary prophecy, was by and large just a way of paving a foundation for introducing Amos of Tekwa as our different drummer today and saying that, for me, there's a lot of nonsense that comes through the process of uh, modern religious prophecy. You get these these moments of allegedly prophetic wisdom coming out of people like Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, and I think we'd be wiser as a Christian community to ignore all of that stuff. But there is a, a way of referring to prophecy that brings the old and the new together that I think is palpable and powerful. And it's first making sure that anybody who tries to introduce a new prophetic vision, that prophetic vision is in sync with the rest. If If it contradicts what Paul said, if it contradicts what Jesus said and did, if it is completely out of sorts with all the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's probably not real prophecy. But from time to time, we probably need people who do little more than simply restate what the prophets of old have said. There's a great value in hearing, once again, the words of these prophets of old. And I'm going to do so in Amos chapter 5, starting with verse 9. And I'll be very shocked if anybody who's familiar with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't recognize the words of Amos of Tekua, because Amos' vision was very important for Martin Luther King's ministry. Uh, here's Amos. It is the Lord who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong. "'So that destruction comes upon the fortress. "'They hate him who reproves in the gate, "'and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. "'Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor "'and exact a tribute of grain from them, "'though you have well-built houses and well-hewn stones, "'yet you will not live in them. "'You have planted pleasant vineyards, "'yet you will not drink their wine. "'For I know your transgressions are many "'and your sins are great.' you who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such time a prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph." Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and alas, in the streets they say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning, and professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing, because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. And alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. "'as when a man flees from a lion, and a bear meets him, "'or goes home, leans against his wall, and a snake bites him. "'Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? "'Even gloom with no brightness in it? "'I hate, I reject your festivals, "'nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. "'Even though you offer uh, up to me burnt offerings, "'and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. "'And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings.' Take away from me the noise of your songs, I will not even listen to the sound of your hearts, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. These are the words of Amos, chapter 5, verses 9 through 24. Let justice roll like an ever-flowing stream. These are the words of Amos, often quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and as relevant to the times we're in as I can possibly imagine, what would Amos say about the income disparity in our country today, and the political shenanigans we will do to make sure we don't have to—we don't even have to honestly answer the question? We're going to obfuscate the question, ignore the question, um, prop up enemies who perhaps are not as fearsome as we think they should be. You know what? something like four out of every five people who watch Fox News on a regular basis believe that the U.S. military actually found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's not true. We did not. But it's important for us to believe that we have those terrifying enemies, so we continue to spend money dealing with enemies who are not as fearsome in some cases as we think they are, and dealing violently, harshly, and perhaps unconstitutionally With those enemies who actually may be real and in our midst, because we would rather do that than answer the kinds of difficult questions that Amos might ask of us if he was asking whether or not we were letting justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I love telling stories. What Some Would Call Lies is a weekly storytelling podcast where each week I tell a story from my life as accurately as I see fit. I've always had trouble distinguishing between what happened and what merely might have happened, but I remain unconvinced that this distinction, for my purposes, matters. Go to WhatSomeWouldCallLies.com or you can subscribe in iTunes or with Stitcher Smart Radio. I like to eat pizza. So I did it again. (laughs) I recorded a podcast that was perhaps twice as long as I thought that it might be. And I got keyed up along the way, but I really, actually, honestly thought I was going to have to slap an explicit language tag on this episode. It is a challenge for me to speak about issues like this without the use of colorful language. Because I have a passion for the way we are treating people in our society. I manage it by trying to disconnect the notion of whether better police work is truly, first and foremost, a race question, and secondly, a procedure question. I will grant you that I'm open-minded to the idea that it really is truly, first and foremost, a race question. There's certainly more than enough evidence to suggest that something might be wrong here. However, to me, the way to solve it is to do police work better. If we just did police work better, imposed procedural penalties for police officers who do police work poorly, we might come up with a better answer despite not dealing head-on and directly with the questions of race, which are certainly there to be dealt with. If you are... If you are punishing, for one of a better word, police officers who do their job as if they're looking for a fight rather than doing their job as if they've got a community to serve and um, peacefulness to protect, then you're going to weed out all of those people who are acting like Klansmen with a badge. That if that perception has some truth in it, even if that truth is widespread and endemic, you don't necessarily have to deal with it by dealing with the racism. You can deal with it by making sure that people are held to a much higher standard. I'm a taxpayer and the community that I, lived in, I live in now, and I have been for as long as I can remember. I am responsible, in some ways, for the quality of police work that is done in my community. And I can tell you that if the police work in my community was being done as poorly, as Beaverton, Ohio, as Cleveland, Ohio, as Staten Island, New York, as Ferguson, Missouri, I could go on and on and on, right? If it was being done that poorly, I would demand change. I would demand change regardless of race, color, creed, sexual orientation, or anything else. I would demand change regardless of the tenure of the police officer or the challenge of the job, because I think that if those changes happen, you will simultaneously see less police officers gunning down unarmed people in the process of trying to apprehend a suspect or ask simple interrogation questions, but you will also see less police officers being shot. I would demilitarize as prudently as possible, maybe not completely. I don't believe in going ditch to ditch, but I would demilitarize our approach to domestic police work because none of the things that I've described in this show look anything like justice rolling down like a mighty stream. None of it looks like what we're supposed to be doing to serve the people who are actually from a police perspective, your customer, the person who is paying for all of this, the person who is served by the peacefulness that can be provided under the umbrella of law and order. We've gotten away from that, and it's a problem. And when a police officer who's shot an unarmed kid, because a routine conversation or police stop turned violent, says he was happy he did it and he would do it again, then something is wrong here. So I'm going to draw a dividing line. It may be the kind of dividing line that separates me from some friends and separates me from some family. But if you think we can't do better in law enforcement in the United States of America in the year 2015, if you don't think we should have done better during most of 2014, I don't think I've got much place for you. It's not that I'm... I'm not drawing a racist line here. I'm not trying to weed out the ne'er-do-wells. I'm just saying I like being around people who are capable of having an intelligent conversation. And if we can't have an intelligent conversation to the fact that this isn't going very well, and it needs to be going a lot better, that we shouldn't be shooting 100 people a month in the process of doing normal, ordinary police work in this country, then something's gone very wrong. If you don't believe that something's gone very wrong, do me a favor. Stop. Read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter to a, from a Birmingham jail. Uh, easy to find online, just Martin Luther King Birmingham Jail. You'll get there. It's free. It's available. I've got a PDF that I've read more than once that's just a link online. It's easy to find. Read that and ask ourselves if we've really come as far as we think we've come in all these years. And even if you think we have come pretty far, there's something really wrong if you don't think we can go farther. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. I also can be found via Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg there. Some of the earliest episodes are being excerpted and posted on SoundCloud. You'll find me as IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud as well. And Inappropriate Conversations is available on Stitcher Smart Radio. I've been spending a lot of time on Stitcher lately because I found that a lot of the shows that I really enjoy have got available... Uh, episodes going all the way back to in some cases the very beginning of their program was a delightful time this weekend looking at a blast from the past and kind of reliving and reviewing some of my favorite podcasts from years and years ago because unlike me their stitcher accounts um, have a, a much more robust set of past shows to listen to I'll be investigating that on the one hand, but most of my focus is going to be putting more clips and excerpts on SoundCloud, so that people who want to explore the oldest Inappropriate conversation shows have some audio hints uh, as to what those shows are all about. In the meantime, I realize this has been a challenging year. This particular episode has been challenging to record. Who knows, it might be challenging to listen to. But sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, no matter where we stand on the issues from a political spectrum or from even a religious perspective... Jay From Masters of None, inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike, and art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at Masters of None Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word.